Welcome to Tied to the Tracks, where a podcast about records. We stand this record. My name is Barb Abney. I'm a voice actress and DJ in the Twin Cities. I'm Augustus Watkins. I am a musician and an indie record label owner in Los Angeles. And today we're excited to welcome Ross Rayla to the podcast. Hey, Ross. Hey. Ross writes for Pioneer Press and gets abused by Katy Perry fans on Twitter. And yeah. oh my God, has uh, been my trans am boyfriend to so many big hair dates. It's it's not even funny. We have seen so many big hair shows. Yeah, totally. Like and some of them multiple times. Like sticks we have mm. seen oh. and journey. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Lover Boy and yeah, we have seen so many. We've seen Motley Crue. We've seen Van Halen. Oh, yeah. The Van Halen show where Dave on the screen was doing high kicks and Dave in real life was <laughs> not. <laughs> but he had to wear the same clothes so that you wouldn't know the difference. And in the spirit of all of that hair metal, today we are talking about <laughs> the most hair metal of all bands, <laughs> Pet Shop Boys. And their 1990 record, Behavior, released on Parlophone. There is actually a bit of a tie-in. Um, when they toured this record in 91, um, Axl Rose was obsessed with it. So he was sending big um, bouquets of roses to each, like their hotel at each tour stop. Oh. And I think it was an homage to, you know, Axl Rose, but also the cover art has these mm. long stem roses. Right. That's beautiful. Anytime I hear of him doing something decent, right? <laughs> it's it's always like, wow, that's right, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I wasn't surprised at Pet Shop Boys, but I was kind of surprised at this record. Why this one? Well, um, let me sort of set it up for you. In '86, I would have been 14, and I was obsessed with music at that point. And the Pet Shop Boys came out. And I was struck by, um, it was these two men who uh, were significantly older than anyone else in that realm at the time. And they had this very sort of detached, ironic, wry voice. And they were so much dif different from everyone else. And they also had a very specific way of presenting, not just themselves, but everything. They used the same photographer um, they had, it was, the band is Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe. Uh, Neil's the singer, composer. Chris is a composer slash synthesizer player. But they would position Chris kind of behind, two steps behind Neil. And Chris was always this kind of quiet, barely heard of from, he didn't smile. And that was kind of the point. To the fact that Behavior's album cover, he's shown from the back of his head. Yeah, he, like that's one of my favorite photos that I've ever had. They had this worldwide hit with West End Girls, and I, mm -hmm. I like everyone at the time went and bought the single, the forty-five. I think I bought it at Pomida in town. <laughs> okay. And I was taken by everything. I was taken by the sleeve, by the song, by the B side, and then the next single, Opportunities, I liked even better. And um, at the time, I was a closeted queer kid. And searching for, I wasn't even consciously searching, but I was finding myself attracted to music that clearly had gay undertones. And at the time, I mean, there were very few sort of out musicians in this pop world. Like Jimmy Somerville was kind of the big one. And he wasn't 
big here by any stretch. Right. So I just, I really felt for the Pet Shop Boys from the start. Their first album was big. Their second album was bigger. It's a Sin was the lead single Mm -hmm. and Heart, uh, which they had written for Madonna, but were too afraid to submit. um, What have I done to deserve this with Betsy Springfield? Then they did Introspective, which was this sort of weirder, like six long songs kind of inspired by the acid house scene. But at that point, Neil Tennant had kind of realized he was past what he called the band's imperial phase, meaning that they were successful, super successful. But then from that kind of point onward, they were going to have to try hard to just maintain their audience. He Mm. kind of thought we would never be that huge again. And so 1990, they go in to make behavior and they don't, they've never said this, but at the time they were both in their thirties and behaviors ended up being kind of like a singer songwriter confessional album, except that it was an electronic record. So it was um, unlike anything they had done up to that point, it came out right after my, I moved to Moorhead to go to Moorhead state university as a freshman came out, I think that October or November. And it just struck me from the first time I've listened to it and I've loved it ever since. That explains it. How did they know that? How could they really sense that their imperial phase was over and that they were going to have to do that? Um, well, it was a matter of, especially in England, their singles had all just done so well, but Domino Dancing, the first single from the mm-hmm. third album, wasn't this massive, huge success. And he just mm-hmm. thought, well, it's writings on the wall. Yeah. Okay. And it's that's a pretty high standard to be like, every single we have has to be a smash. Right. But that's like you two levels of, of ambition. And <laughs> yeah. some of us can settle for just regular careers. You have to remember that um, Neil Tennant, uh, he was an editor uh, initially for Marvel Comics UK. He would oh. take the, um, the American comics and change the dialogue as necessary to kind of make it more British. Oh. And then he moved on to Smash Hits Magazine, which was a teen pop uh, magazine. And he was, I believe, by the time the Pet Shop Boys got signed, he was the deputy editor. Wow. So he came into this sort of knowing how... I think he had a very, uh, very solid idea in his head of like, this is how you put out a record. This is how you market it. This is how you put out singles. You know, this is the look. And I just always really appreciated that. It, it can make me forgive lesser songs if there's just, you can tell there's so much thought put behind. Mm-hmm. This is a band that sort of, I want to say, invites you to take them seriously and also invites you to be in on the joke. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say at the time of this album, they were seen as not, serious i mean they actually got pretty decent reviews they were sort of just seen as not the real thing Mm. you know they weren't authentic they were just this sort of funny smart little pop band and that's all they were ever going to be shall we dive in because we want So our first track, it's it's being boring, and it's like, you know, we were never boring. Mm-hmm. Like, I it's we were always living our true selves, right? That's that's this song, isn't it? Um, in in part, um, it's it's about AIDS, uh, in a, a big part. It's because you have to remember at the time, 1990, a, a big part of a generation of gay men had died or mm-hmm. were sick. 
That's true. And this is an anecdote I heard just in the last few years from a friend um, who's HIV positive. It was around this time he was living in uh, Wisconsin. He went to his doctor and the doctor was like, okay, you're HIV positive. Would you like me to help you figure out a way to kill yourself? Oh. Are you that, serious? Yeah, that was, that was, you know, that was the treatment. There was just oh this sort of, it, it, it was like a death sentence. Yeah. But amazingly enough, he moved here and he was able to get in just as like the first drugs were starting to work yeah. in treatment. I mean, he's as healthy as he could be and, and survived all these decades. Mm. But I mean, at this time, it would be a matter of like six months sure. earlier he, that he wouldn't he have had that die. chance. So, yeah, being boring is is this um, it's sort of remembering the past and celebrating the good times with people who are gone. And it's a really unusual way for at the time, like this pop group to open their fourth album with this lengthy meditation, basically. Wow. It's, a lot of people say it's their best song. Uh, my partner, Patrick, it's his favorite Pet Shop Boys song for sure. I wasn't like dedicated to the lyrics. I wasn't going back and checking the lyrics on this one so hard. And maybe that's why this is like, I'm like, it's about AIDS. I thought they were just saying, hey, look, Everybody else is starting to be, you know, you know, out and happy. And <clears throat> we've been doing it all along. No. Well, no, that's actually not true. They, um, they're, their albums are gay as hell for sure. Right. <laughs> right. And it, like, especially now when I look back at like the lyrics on the first album, I'm like, how did I not, I mean, I knew like, Oh, this is different. This is, you know, right. but I'm like, Oh, this is like super explicitly gay. Mm. But um, Neil Tennant didn't come out till 94. No. And Chris Lowe has, I believe never spoken about it. He doesn't really speak much publicly at all, mm. but it's not like he's, you know, pretending that he's, they've never pretended to be anything. Strange. Right. But yeah, again, it was the era. It was the era. I mean, gobsmacked. Things yeah. were a lot different. It feels AIDS is just looming large over a lot of, you know, music at this time. Um, and yes. you can, you can kind of, you can kind of miss that if you're not looking for it, if you know, your antenna isn't in tune to that. The song is so beautiful, but it's so, uh, what heartbreaking. I mean, it's so tender. Yeah. They made this record. Um, they wanted to, uh, they didn't want to use sequencers at the time. They didn't like whatever sequencers that were available. So they decided to make it with analog synths. And so they found um, Harold Fultemeyer, who was uh, engineer for Giorgio Moroder, Moroder, who made all those great Donna Summer disco albums. Uh, and Giorgio and Harold worked closely together on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they, they went to Germany to record it in his, his home studio, which apparently was like a museum of analog synthesizers. At the time, it seemed crazy to be like, how can a synthesizer be warm? Yeah. But that's what they wanted, and they really got it. I mean, this yeah. album, the whole album is so just musically just beautiful and mm -hmm. delicate. Yeah. But also, like, big sounding and textured, and there's a ton going on. Yeah, maximalist, mm -hmm. I would say. <laughs> and the, that's interesting you say that, Ross, because now the analog synths are very much in fashion again. Digital synths are out of style at the moment. And so one of the things I kept hearing was th there are some dated sounds on here for sure, but um, much of this is timeless, or at least much of this you wouldn't be surprised if you heard today on a brand new record. Yeah, and there are some very specific things that date this record. 
that like the new jack swing exactly exactly (laughs) that being a big case but um there's even you know the manchester sound was booming and there's hints of that kind of here and there um and up to that point they were always very upfront about like we're gonna do this next single with the hottest producer in miami they weren't afraid of chasing trends they were kind of happily commercial, even despite their sort of detached image. Yeah, they wanted to they wanted to be famous and they wanted to have hit records. They just wanted to do it on their own terms, which I think they were able to. Yeah. And you have to remember, too, at the time, I mean, pop music was like one thing and serious rock music was another. And the general thinking with pop bands, especially like this, it's kind of like, oh, they're a novelty. They've got a single or two, and then they're kind of done. Right. And this was the Pat Trap Boys kind of saying whether they knew it or not, like, we're in this for the long haul. So, okay. I completely misread that first track. Completely. <laughs> Damn. I don't think you should be too hard on yourself, though, Barb, because this is a band that is not coming out and... Uh, they're not laying it on thick. There are layers of meaning and layers of subtlety. I don't know that even, I don't know that anybody could blame you for that or even, I, obviously I can't speak for the band, but I think <laughs> that that detached way that they're approaching their lyrics and their image and everything, it, it's kind of by design that that you might take something else from it and enjoy that just as much. I can appreciate that. I just, I had assumed that Neil Tennant had always been out. Wasn't the case. And who am I? I was waiting for you to say, no, Barb, he is straight. And then I would have, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I mean, my gaydar has been bruised for years. It could be broken. I don't know. I swear I've said these words. <laughs> this must be the place I waited years to leave. Wait, wait, wait. Do you waiting years or were you waiting years to leave? <laughs> oh, I wait. I waited years. Yes. Okay. But, <laughs> um, raise your hand if you wish you would have got out of your small town earlier. Picture right? me at home, podcast listeners, raising my hand. It very much spoke to me specifically because this was two, three months into me being away from my parents and mm-hmm. living in a different city and being able to sort of explore um, my queerness mm-hmm. because I wasn't, I didn't get come out to my parents until I was 21. I actually, I came out to my friends at 21. I never really officially came out to my parents. I never lied to them. And I, I used to tell her like when I lived in Olympia, I was, I told her, you know, I have a really close friend who's an artist in Seattle. I'm, you know, seeing him a lot. So they knew for <laughs> sure the day that I, uh, introduced them to Patrick and they fell in love with them immediately. So of course, yeah, of course, this is the era of long intros. You just cannot get away with an introduction. That's as long as this one anymore. Like you got to get to the first verse or the hook way sooner than, than you did back in 1990. <laughs> yeah. If you're a pop act at this time, the first track is the big hit. Yep. And then the second track is like the second single. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here's this just beautiful, delicate little, again, nostalgic piece about being a, a young person wanting to escape to the big city. It was just unlike anything else going on at the time. Love those Johnny Marr guitars, man. He he shows up from time to time and just crushes it on things. Yeah. he um, And they got to know him when they made that electronic single. Oh. And Johnny Marr has since played on other Pet Shop Boys records. He's kind of their 
pals or whatever. Actually, at the time, that was really significant to me because to this day, my two favorite bands are the Smiths and the Pet Shop Boys. And at the time, NME did an interview. Neil didn't, it was more like, would you say that the Pet Shop Boys are the Smiths you can dance to? <laughs> and he didn't say it, but they, that, that kind of was a popular catchphrase for this record. And it, it, it kind of made a lot of sense because yeah. it's you know, more of a traditional singer-songwriter rock album. Not rock, but you know what I mean. Did you immediately start writing about music since I did. you went off to college? I thought you might have. I did. I first week found the newspaper advisor and walked in and said, I want to write a music column. Wow. And he kind of said like, okay, but you know, I've heard this a lot and we end up getting three columns, then they quit. And by this, my junior year, I was the editor of the college paper. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been at the Pie Press how long? Since uh, August 2004. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. That, yeah, that means I'm old. No, it doesn't mean you're old. <laughs> it means you have a distinguished career. It does mean that. It certainly <laughs> does. Have you met these guys at all? I've never met them, but I've got to interview Neil twice, which was kind of a cool thing. They played uh, in, I think, 06 and 09. Their tours stopped here, and I interviewed them both times, which was cool. And now are they coming back this summer? Yeah, they are on tour. With New Order? And they're, for the first time in their career, they're doing a Greatest Hits set. Oh. Which they've never done. They've, oh. They may have nostalgic songs, but they've been always very careful not to position themselves as like, oh, we're this 80s pop band. Right. They have always tried to be like, we're contemporary. And part of that is not doing a Greatest Hits tour. Right. It's like you tour an album. So have we moved on from the agreement that all three of us have said many of the words in this second song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it wasn't that we waited years to leave, but we couldn't get out of there mm. fast enough. We, we had to wait to get out, right? We had to wait until yep. we were a certain age to get out of that place. So this must be the place I waited years to leave. I think this artist was listening maybe to this album when she constructed the intro to this song. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that they they borrow off of each other, or that she borrowed from them, not that they borrow each other. This is Seamstress by Dessa. The intro, I think, to face the truth, is maybe a little more dissonant. It's just a little, like, maybe a little even eerier than this. Uh, the there's a, there's a discord that happens, um, but Holy shit. Does that give away to a R&B groove that um, so pretty good. undeniable? My friend Kep told me this one time. He said, you can tell when people get into a drum machine because they use every sound on the drum machine. And they, there's just like every single sound on the 808 is being uh, used straight off the bat in the song. It's so good. Is this the like, you, you keep saying you're going to meet me out and we're going to hang out and you keep not showing up. This is the I love you, but you treat me bad song. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's about coming out. I mean, Oh. One way to look at it is they were writing songs kind of like the Smiths did that you can hear as a straight person and be like, oh, I get it. 
you can hear as a gay person and be like, oh, I get it, <laughs> but, and what the straight people don't get. That was a big part of the, the appeal at the time. For a lot of gay artists, they had to sort of speak in code and in ways that were sort of like, like nods and winks to other gay people. But it's mm. still, you know, the music was still palatable in quotes, you know, for straight people who could be completely oblivious to it. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, as an aside, uh, I remember uh, as sort of at the height of my Morrissey obsession, who I've, I've long since given up on him, but I remember going to um, fan sites and message boards and there were people who were willing to die saying like, oh, Morrissey's straight. All these songs are about women. Uh, and I would be like, what? Are, are you even listening? <laughs> are we listening to the same song? I'm a big enough Smith's Morrissey fan that my fandom, my passion for them is documented in a best-selling book. Chuck Klosterman's first book. Of course uh, it is. Of course. Yeah. I made the comparison that as a closeted Midwestern teen, the Smiths spoke to me in a way that I think Axl Rose spoke to straight small town Midwestern kids in the eighties. That and makes sense. That's the, that's the point he it's in his first book that he kind of expands on that. And the name of that book is Fargo rock city. Now this, this has that New Jack swing thing. It's the Bobby Brown sound. It was everywhere at this, that time. Mm -hmm. And they kind of decided to do use it for this track. The track sounds different than anything else on the record, for sure. But um, lyrically, it's about making fun of pop acts trying to do charity work. And it's not the doing of the charity work, but it's like they thought it was ridiculous for pop acts to take on these serious subjects and kind of trivialize them in the process. This is Faith No More's We Care A Lot, just wrapped in another package. It's a different take on that, yeah. It's very critical of charity and causes. But the thing is, I mean, they've done charity stuff throughout their whole career. So it's not like they're anti-charity. They were more anti the idea of trivializing serious issues from people who didn't know what they were talking about, frankly. I found it interesting when I Googled for the lyrics on this one. And I don't know if it's just the lyric site that popped up. Genius says, this is believed to be about Transvision vamp singer, Wendy James. Why I've not? also heard it was uh, George Michael. See, now I thought it might be George Michael because there was something about the way that that's what I had written down in my notes. I wrote George Michael, question mark. But uh, the thing about it being about George Michael, the one and I don't even know that it's about one specific person. Um, but George Michael at this point had put out Listen Without Prejudice. I mean, he basically oh. dropped all of the pop star veneer and just like concentrate on my music. And in a lot of ways, I, I think there's parallels between that record and behavior now that i think about it i might have the date wrong i thought listen without prejudice prejudice was 89 but it, i bet it was 90 i bet that album came out mm. in the same time do you think anyway. they'll put you in the rock and roll hall of fame yeah <laughs> yeah and they were making fun of the point of you know rock and roll being supposedly rebellious and all this and the rock and roll hall of fame is a bunch of rich white executives <laughs> in a yeah. posh hotel paying thousands of dollars for their seat. How is that rock and roll? Yeah. How did the rock and roll generation just become a bunch of authoritarians? I 
will not understand. No. Boomers. (laughs) (laughs) This hook, it's so wry. It's so clever. It's so magical. It it rhymes. Like there's this internal rhyme in the sentence. It is just such a fantastic and exquisite pop construction. And and it's very much the only track really that would have fit on their first or second album. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds much more like that time. Classic Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> oh my God. Like I, I have a real struggle with what is, you know, what a classic rock format should sound like, you know, to someone my Ross's age, you know, like it should have Pet Shop Boys is classic rock, but so is BTO. There's a really interesting discussion to be had about classic pop. And we can talk about classic rock, but do we have a, any sort of language, lexicon, vision of classic pop? Because if there is, Pet Shop Boys, I mean, Ross, I know you said that they, they've they been really uh, you know, aware of making sure they're touring on current music and not being a greatest hits kind of band, but certainly they have a classic pop catalog. And if you're not going to put them on the classic rock stations, where do some of these really great previous generation bands, where do they belong on the radio? Oh, God. It's uh, that's always kind of been an issue here in the States. I think it's less so in England and Europe. I lived in Europe for a few years. I can tell you they love their 80s music in mm-hmm. in Europe. That's just insane. <laughs> you can hear as much disco in 80s as you wish to hear. And in the 80s, England uh, and, and Europe took pop music a lot more seriously than America mm-hmm. did, or at least the American like critics and industry. Because it was just always seen as just disposable or just one off. Right. They weren't, they just weren't the real thing. Mm-hmm. They, you know, it would be like, oh, well, will they be around in three years? Will they be around in 10? No. Because it's, uh, it's oh. commodity music. I have oh, a, I have a, no. I have, I have a real, this is like, I love the way that their, their hits record was called Art Pop or Pop Art. Um, mm-hmm. They have a certain insistence that you can view them as a, as sort of some kind of high art. It's the pop format taken to uh, maybe a less populist uh, bent and they, they're trying to be, they're, they're certainly highbrow. Yeah, and, exactly. And I think that's really, <coughs> really appreciate that about this band. This might pigeonhole them more than I wish to, but this is something that you could appreciate in a gallery setting. And I, that to me is, mm. that's high praise for me. I love galleries. No, I see that. There's actually, um, I don't have it, but there's a fine art book that came out maybe 10 years ago that catalogs up to that point, all of their graphic design mm. and photography and sleeves. Mm. And um, makes sense. I wouldn't shock me if there was an exhibit associated with it. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but yeah, I could, I could see that only the wind. I think let's, let's get back on, uh, let's get back on track here. It's only, And the thunder rolled. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, I obviously love this record and I've listened to it a billion times. But a couple weeks ago, when I knew I was doing this, I pulled it out specifically to just give it a fresh listen from front to back. And by the time we got to Only the Wind, I was like, man, this is a really somber record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I always knew it was, but it just hit me even more with that track to an extent was i think a little bit of a throwaway i think neil wrote the lyrics in the studio mm. but it's just it's a very gentle pretty little sad ballad 
it's so high concept. It's like, I, I know I will not be the first person to say that this has all kinds of Broadway West end kind of connections to it. Oh, absolutely. That Neil Tennant very much enjoys that style of writing. Yeah. To put it in context, the year before this, they made an album with Liza Minnelli, um, a, a, like mm-hmm. a, a pop record. Uh, but like the first single was Losing My Mind, which is a Sondheim song, but they just turned into a, like a disco song. Does the, the sudden outro of Only the Wind just kill you? Where it's it's just kind of going along, and all of a sudden the there's this like symphony, or there's like these strings, and I think they're MIDI strings, and all of a sudden it just stops, and he just says, "I'm sorry," and you're like, "Oh, yeah, I am too." <laughs> 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 yeah, it's amazing, you know, to think uh, again. I keep saying this at the time, but this kind of music was seen as superficial and not serious, and th- you're getting such an emotional reaction from it. It's it's like how can you not take this seriously. Yeah. I like what you said, Ross, about it feeling like a singer songwriter album. I hadn't made that connection before, but there's a crossover there that I think is really interesting, really unique. I mean, they were accurately portrayed as being arch and ironic Mm -hmm. and cynical, but I think they wanted to be like, look, that's not all we are. We can do something that's very straightforward and very emotional and very heartfelt. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think a lot of this record is. And then to prove that they weren't, just arch and cynical. They went in on to write a song about the fall of communism called My October Symphony. Shall I rewrite or revise my October symphony? Or as an indication, change the dedication. At the time, this was the song I really attached to largely because of that beat that uh, mm-hmm. that Vogue beat that was like so that was so of that time yeah but I, I still to this day love that and I love that contrasted with an orchestra and mm-hmm. uh yeah what a nice beautiful touch to to close that out with that like just a really nice sort of court I mean it wasn't quite an orchestra but like that nice quartet kind of sound that oh. that clo- I mean it's just very clearly not William Tell in terms it's just like a couple of close mic strings but it's like on the nose, but it was just exactly what was called for, for this, for this really lovely song. And another thing worth noting about this record is that up to this point, a fair amount of their songs, he would kind of speak, sing, yeah. or it sounds weird, but like rap. I mean, there's rap on West End Girls. Yeah. It's just not what you think of, especially at, at that time. But on Behavior, he really sings mm. and he sings beautifully. It's not this strong, huge voice, but it's this really intimate, at times almost whispering, but it, like it really draws you in. He's got a voice like a like a violin. Yeah. Or like a like a choir boy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When we got to this song, I like Pet Shop Boys. I'm not like wasn't I'm not steeped in them, but um I just thought here we are writing an electro pop song about the fall of the Soviet Union, like <laughs> Neil, Chris, you are my people. It's Bowie-esque. And if, if you like it, um, they later in their career did a score for the the silent film Battleship Potemkin. Really? That kind of returns, draws on some of these same themes. So when did the wall come down? Was it 89 <clears throat> or was it 90? I think it was 80s, late 80s. So what was that metal tour called? The Moscow Music Peace Festival, the 12th and 13th of August, 1989, featuring Motley Crue, Ozzy Osbourne, Scorpions, Cinderella, Bon Jovi, 
Skid Row and Gorky Park, which probably has absolutely nothing to do with the other. So I will guide it back on track because I am the one who took it off the track this time. So Hard was actually a single, right? It was the lead single. Okay. I know that Chris does not like it. Really? Um, he sort of saw it as a throwaway. No. It, it's a pretty straightforward song about, you know, you're dating someone and then you realize that they're also, they're not exclusive. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. It was the first single. I still remember buying it and being very excited to hear it. We've both given up smoking because it's fatal. So whose matches are those? Matches are those. Oh. Yeah. What an effective way to tell that story. I just love that. I love the lyricism of this band. Is so hard. Is that a double entendre as well? He was asked that and he said, actually, no, it just was an accident. Like he didn't, it didn't really hit him until late in the okay. game. I also love the delivery in the second verse where he says, talking about I have secrets that could shock you. And he kind of just squeaks in this, I'm indebted to a contact magazine. And then they quick jump into the chorus. The, again, just the just the smart delivery and the thoughtfulness of the mm-hmm. way that they uh the way you deliver that line is really exquisite. I mean, once again, that's a, a reason I like this, the Pet Shop Boys so much is because there's so much thought put into everything and so much intention and and uh, not everyone does that. No. Mm-mm. Nervously, speaking of thought and intention, what a trembling and cautious song. It's a coming out story. It's again, very quiet. And it sounds almost like you're sitting in a small, quiet, dark room and your friend is telling you a story that's very intimate. Mm-hmm. That's how that's how it feels to me. Yeah, no, no real drums to speak of. There's like a little bit of snare drum that kind of shows up at the end, but I, I was kind of waiting for the song to maybe kick in like in a, in a power ballad kind of way where it might just kind of and it just, it just didn't, which I liked. I'm glad that they had the restraint there. It's funny you say that because at one point in the production, they were considering doing it like it was a Whitney Houston single. (gasps) Really? Really? But they couldn't, I don't know if they just thought that was ultimately a bad idea or they couldn't figure out how to make it work. But it, it, they definitely, that was in the back of their head. Because it was like kind of calling out for it, which I, I appreciated that they didn't. But somewhere out there in an alternate universe, nervously turns into a, a, a just a hard power, Whitney Houston-esque power ballad, I'm sure. A companion piece to How Will I Know. Yes. Oh, my God. Where are we? <laughs> we are going, oh, we're at the end of the world. Here's that yeah. new Jack again. This song was a last minute replacement. Uh, they were going to use a song on the album called Miserable, Miserableism, which is excellent. And they used it as a B-side for one of the singles. But for whatever reason, they swapped it out at the last minute for this, uh, The End of the World, which ha- is very contemporary sounding for that time. Mm. I love it because I love that house piano. 
late '80s mm-hmm. house piano. It's just I'm a sucker for. It's a toe tapper, right? I mean, I did read some contemporary reviews, or they were kind of talking about how, yes, this is going to hit in the clubs, but it's also going to reward you for repeated listens at home. Um, yeah, absolutely. And again, that was something they were kind of going for, right? It was to be a, a you know club band, but also be this sort of singer songwriter mm-hmm. act for this. Yeah. This song is brimming with hope, right? It's a snapshot of this breakup, but lyrically it's sort of suggesting that there's something better on, you know, in the horizon. And I think the way that they really punctuate that is where, where they establish a new groove at the outro of the song. There's like a triangle that comes in and a whole new song kicks in. It sounds like it's going to be a medley and then it just fades out. And I think that's a really wonderful technique that kind of, gives you a vision or a feeling of a brighter future. Things have changed now and it's the end of the world and the beginning of something new, you heartbroken thing. So you might say that it's showing you there might be an escape from the humdrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and there is a, a recurring theme, especially in the first decade of the Pet Shop Boys of it's okay come out, you know, you're going to get your heart broken. Things will, you know, not always go your way, but it's things will get better. And there's more of us than you think there are. A grounded optimism. Yeah. Oh my God, here we are. Here we are at Jealousy. If I'm honest about it now, Jealousy is my favorite song on this record. Really? Yeah. It's um, And it's actually the first song they wrote together. At this point, it would have been probably five or six years old. And they demoed it when they did their first demo. But for whatever reason, it never made the cut. Maybe it just didn't feel like it was right until Behavior. But it's a big, glorious celebration song. And they did um, an extended version of it that is well worth seeking out. Because it's basically Mm. jealousy, but even bigger. Ah. (laughs) Jealousy-er. And, um, harder. It's just a, <laughs> it's like a, um, it's like a movie soundtrack. Song. Yes, it's just triumphant and full of life. Can you both, uh, can you get behind the MIDI orchestra, the synth orchestra at the end? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. But it is silly, right? Oh yeah. I well, love I, it. I mean, they were going for like pomp and circumstance. Yeah, boy, do they get it. And if, mm-hmm. it's worth looking up the music video because you get even more of a sense of that, you know, they're, they're well aware of what they're doing. Lyrically, it's, a, well, it's a song about jealousy. Yeah, it does what it says on the tin. Exactly. And uh, that's one of the things I love about the Pet Shop Boys is they've got a lot of great, catchy, big songs that are often kind of sad lyrics or, you know, melancholy. I like that for the same reason I like, you know, Steely Dan. Like Steely mm-hmm. Dan will have these like big catchy songs and then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So I just, I Googled the single itself and I guess the reason that they were waiting for it was to get Harold Faltemeyer okay. to put it out. They specifically wanted him to do it. I have not seen Robbie Williams sing it. I know a lot of people love Robbie Williams a lot more than I do. Yeah. I've never. And a lot of them are European. A lot of them. Yeah. They're European or gay. 
Uh-huh. My gay male friends, I have a lot of them that love him some Robbie Williams. I've just never had the F for him. Would you prefer him to sing your Pet Shop Boys songs or would you prefer Neil? Oh, Neil, definitely. So is this your favorite then? Your favorite, favorite Pet Shop Boys? Yes, absolutely. And I, I, it's partially, you know, because of the time it hit me. But also, I just think it's a great record. It really is a great record. And I it's have to really, thank you. It's really like them kind of operating on all cylinders, yeah. firing on all cylinders. I, I find it unfortunate that, you know, in the Twin Cities, we do have kind of a glut of radio. And there are a myriad of places where you might be able to hear a new Pet Shop Boys song on the, on the FM dial. But there are so many towns, like maybe where any one of us was born where we would never hear this record or anything newer. Like we only know, you know, West End girls because that's the only one that ever got FM radio play. Right. And maybe George on my mind or you were always on my mind. Well, and now, you know, there's that car commercial that's using opportunities. It's an insurance. insurance. That's right. Yeah. It's funny you bring that up because the first time I saw that, I just laughed because if you listen to the lyrics of the song, yeah, it's so incongruent. It's just like when um, that cruise line used Iggy Pop's Lust for Lust Life. Lust for Life, yeah. I'm like, that's great, but it, do you know what the song's about? <laughs> it doesn't seem like it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it probably paid Iggy Pop's health care for uh, oh, yeah. several years. Yep. Um, and Good for them. I love where they don't make sense where they just hear, Oh, ring of fire fits here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hemorrhoids <laughs> thing. We should get ring of fire. You know, they just yeah. hear those ad people. If you are one of those ad people and you think that our podcast would be a great place for your ad. Um, Go fuck tied to the tracks pod. <laughs> At gmail.com. I mean, we want to make some kind of money eventually. Yeah, um, we don't make, we're not making art. We're talking about other people's art. Yeah. Okay, Ross. I I live to read whatever you're doing on Twitter. It's always hysterical. What was it last week? The Katy Perry people came after you again. And I don't even know why. Yeah, it's funny. I was sitting at home watching TV. And, you know, Patrick, I think, had probably already gone to bed. It was a Thursday because Thursday night, my e- inbox starts filling in with new singles for Friday. Right, right. And it kind of it starts Thursday night and <laughs> continues all the way through oh. Friday afternoon. And I get an email saying, you know, Katy Perry's new single uh, in association with Pokemon. That's it. That's and I right. Co- I copied and pasted that in a tweet and just said, just the subject line. And I said, Katy Perry tries so hard, you guys. Uh. <laughs> and, uh, it's kind of a running joke for me because I've made that joke before and other things. But I, you know, sent it, got a few replies, and then went to bed. And the next morning, woke up, and Katy Perry fans are not afraid to go there. Oh, they're so mean, though. Oh. They're just so petty and mean, and like, you know, who are you to be talking about new music? You're old. Yeah. Well, and as, as as of right now, uh, my pinned tweet is me wearing this shirt, and you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm balding, obviously, and I'm um I'm overweight and I'm old, but they kind of took that and ran with it, and 
the, the thing is though, I don't, I don't take any of this stuff personally. No, we can't. I, I get what this kind of Stan culture is. And I think it's funny. And last time it happened, uh, bring me the news, did a story about it. <laughs> <laughs> Where do people find you online? What do people, what do you want people to know about you? And um, well, I've been a journalist, a writer, for my entire uh, adult life. Since 2004, I've been at the Pioneer Press, which is the daily newspaper in St. Paul, Minnesota. Really, Googling my name is the way to go because there's no one else on this planet with my name. Nice. Um, That's true. But um, I, I'm on social media. The place that I spend time and effort on is Twitter. But I'll plug my better half, Patrick Richardson, just published a book in March. It's called Laundry Love. And he's got a TV show on Discovery Plus called The Laundry Guy. It's amazing. Like, Patrick is everywhere. Now, Mona Williams is still open in the mall, isn't it? Yep, that's his store. It's on the second floor at the mall. Um, of America, of course. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. And um, he sells apparel and gifts, but his sort of main focus is luxury laundry products. I think that this is so beautiful that we ask you to come on and talk about a record and talk about yourself and you're talking about your boyfriend. And that is lovely. <laughs> it's, it's so amazing to see everybody knows who Patrick is now, you know, mm -hmm. you were the famous one in the family and now it's like, now you're both, you're, you're the gay super couple of St. Paul. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at last. <laughs> <laughs> We've always known it about you, but <laughs> All right. Thanks for um, having me. This oh, oh, thanks for doing it. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Tied to the Tracks. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're everywhere. You can find us, I promise. You can email us directly if you have questions or suggestions for the podcast. And please, please subscribe. Thank you to Ross for being on this week. And thanks, Gus. Thanks, Bar Barb. <laughs> Thanks, Barb, for being there. You're always there for me. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Dude, thank thanks you. so much. Mm -hmm.